Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend. Three of our favorite segments from the week packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning, everyone. On today's show, WNYC's Bahar Ostadan on the EBT scams plaguing many New Yorkers. When you go to use your EBT card at a grocery store for SNAP benefits, you might be at risk of having your card surreptitiously scanned and the money on it drained. We will invite you to help us do the reporting with your stories on the phones, and Bahar will explain how it happens and what can be done about it. We will also have a member of the New York State Assembly who's got a piece of legislation that should help uh, prevent this for the future. Also, we'll continue our series with the makers of the five Oscar-nominated feature-length documentaries. Other people do the hit movies. We do the documentaries. Today, the director of a nominated film from Chile, called The Eternal Memory, about a couple dealing with one partner's Alzheimer's disease that also has a national politics Alzheimer's overlay. And we begin here. Um, Actually, before we begin here, one other thing. On today's show, we will have Charlie Locke on their essay in Vox about why it's sometimes good to have regrets with your calls on how regrets have ever made your life or the world better. But here is where we begin it's our Climate Story of the Week, which we do every Tuesday on the show. And today we have a special guest to mark an anniversary. It was five years ago this month, February 7th, 2019, when New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in office barely a month, introduced the Green New Deal resolution, along with Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Here's 30 seconds of that moment, five years and two weeks ago. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. That's what this agenda is all about. Because climate change, climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. Not Not just as a nation, but as a world. AOC on February 7th, 2019. So how's it going five years later? With us now for our Climate Story of the Week is Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose district covers parts of northwest Queens and eastern parts of the Bronx. We'll talk about the Green New Deal and other things, too. Congresswoman, thanks very much for coming on for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. You know, so many listeners have heard the term by now from so many lips. Cuomo had a Green New Deal. (laughs) Everybody's got some version of something uh, used in so many ways. I wonder if you would start by doing a reset for us, building on what you said five years ago, and explain how you think listeners should even understand the term Green New Deal today before we discuss how it's going or any debate around it. Of course. Thank you. And I appreciate that. I think and, and it's an excellent question because for a long time, for decades, we've had people talk about environmental policy, 
or climate policy. Um, and there's a central question about what makes Green New Deal policy different than any of those others. And what really, I think, distinguishes Green New Deal style policy is that instead of treating economic growth and environmental protection and, and environmental justice and social justice issues as competing interests, Green New Deal policy says climate policy is not effective or complete unless it meets three standards. The first is unless it has an aggressive 10-year decarbonization timeline. The second is it must create uh, good union jobs and it must create good high quality jobs. And the third is that it cannot leave any communities behind in that it must incorporate uh, environmental justice, including social and racial justice components, as well as economic justice components um, as part of the policy. Uh, too often, we would see climate policy that would do one or the other. It may meet a scientific target, except you would have poor or, or black and brown communities that do not benefit, um, or the communities that have been exposed to toxic waste, air, water, et cetera, that would be left behind. Or, you know, there would be this, this almost this sense of, of competition between job creation and environmental protection and conservation. And so what Green New Deal policy does is that it is it creates jobs, it centers um, environmental justice communities, and it, it ensures that we meet our climate targets so that we can save the planet. So staying on the history for a minute and picking up on what you were just saying about good union jobs and social justice components, uh, you probably know there's a book that came out in the fall by Ryan Grimm from The Intercept called The Squad, AOC and the Hope <laughs> of a Political Revolution. And, and he's got an excerpt that I was reading on the Intercept site that includes a description of the competing interests of groups in the Democratic Party coalition as you were preparing the resolution five years ago, such as the NAACP was against a carbon tax or any form of carbon pricing because they thought that would allow rich companies to buy up those rights and continue mm -hmm. to put their polluting plants in black neighborhoods. And a tax would also raise energy prices disproportionately on poor and working class folks. So they wanted a way to eliminate fossil fuels, not tax them. But the mm -hmm. AFL-CIO opposed a call to end fossil fuels because there were so many good jobs in the field. So you had mm -hmm. to thread the needle in various ways, as Ryan Grimm reminds us. So how much on the same page do you think various progressive groups are today around that concept? Oh, I think there's been a sea change. I think that we have made incredible, incredible progress. And a lot of that is in no small part thanks to the advocacy and power of all of the organizing and the energy behind Green New Deal organizing uh, really was a driving force behind the Inflation Reduction Act um, that was that the president signed that Congress passed two years ago, which ended up has ended up becoming and culminating in the largest U.S investment, federal investment to combat climate change in American history. And what that legislation did was that it profoundly realigned the economic incentives to combat climate change. And so you're absolutely correct. Um, there were a tremendous amount of those fault lines, both even within a pro-climate uh, coalition, but generally as well, 
um, alongside all of these questions. But now, whereas before there was a lot of debates around carbon taxes and, and the number of jobs in the fossil fuel industry, we have now work to even the playing field where there's a tremendous amount of tax incentive for renewable energy and as well as as union job creating renewable energy pro uh, projects made in america projects and more and not only and you know what what those tax incentives do is not only do they incentivize that right kind of production, but they also make it more affordable for everyday people to access. And examples of that are like the EV tax credit or tax credits on heat pumps so that people can update um, and make their their heating much more efficient at a much more affordable price. And so that is actually, it is hard to overstate how much it has realigned the landscape. And previously, where there were folks on the opposite ends of certain climate questions, they've now been aligned to the same side of things as well. And it has done so much to accelerate our, our, our progress in meeting our climate targets. And listeners, we welcome your questions for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on the Green New Deal resolution at five years old. A few on other topics are okay, too, as we will branch out a little as well. 212 433 WNYC 212-433-9692. Call or text. Questions, no speeches, please. 212-433-WNYC 433-9692. That, that was really interesting about how different groups, uh, different constituencies have gotten on the same page. Um, so I want to ask you about Biden, his... You know, at first, he didn't even want to use the term Green New Deal, I think, in part to differentiate himself from you when he was running for <laughs> president. But his post-pandemic bill, known as Build Back Better, as you know, was supposed to combine climate provisions with FDR-style New Deal-like provisions like universal pre-K, affordable housing, the expanded child tax credit, more home health aid eligibility and better pay for them. And more, and when it got scaled down into the bill that passed, that you were just referring to, the Inflation Reduction Act, I was actually surprised that the part that survived the most was the climate part, because mm -hmm. I thought all those family-focused items would be popular across party lines out in America. You know, families crave and need all those things. I don't have to tell you, and that climate items would never get past Senator Joe Manchin from coal country, mm -hmm. but exactly the opposite happened. Why do you think it came out the way it did? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you know, of course, we fought so incredibly hard for these family items. The 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 essential nature of the child tax credit and how that transformed not just people's lives, but the entire country. Child poverty was cut in half. It was one of the items that we had fought hardest um, to preserve. But as you mentioned, conservative resistance to it was too high. Um, I think what Republicans saw in that was, um, you know, in their platform of so-called fiscal responsibility, which I don't see what's so fiscally responsible about not uh, cutting child poverty in half and essentially doubling child poverty in the United States. But that's that's a different aside. Um, they, you know, the 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 line items um, and the the so the price tags on those they felt. Um, were too high. 
And so what we saw as these transformative family investments, and I see them as investments because they generate a profound amount of economic activity, um, did did have a lot of resistance. Senator Joe Manchin specifically um, cited his resistance to the child tax credit. I think they they kind of saw it almost as a giveaway um, when you know it 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 really became a, a partisan issue, which. As you noted, I felt it shouldn't have been. I think a lot of people felt it shouldn't have been. But unfortunately, um, Republicans developed this this very rank partisan resistance to some of those items. Um, but when it came to the climate piece, what is interesting is that I think it's it spoke to a couple of things as to why it survived. One is that I think one of the stories of this time that isn't being told enough is how powerful mass movements are getting in the United States. Um, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom out there, but when you think about all of the things that we have accomplished, despite resistance and speculation, not from one, but from both parties, I think we are starting to see really a story of how everyday organizing from Americans are transforming our political landscape, whether the our elected leadership is predisposed to it or not at times. And I think that's the story of what happened with this climate piece. The, the saliency of the climate issue, um, not just when we introduced the Green New Deal, but in general, has become so strong and so animating, uh, particularly among young people. We were having sit-ins, we were having mass arrests, we were having um large protests marches and importantly people were voting on the issue young people were voting on the issue um climate justice communities were asking greater questions about it it became a real point of political pressure so i think a that was a major piece of this but then also secondly um we are also reaching the science you know, no matter where you are in the country, we are starting to see everybody affected by the climate crisis and importantly, everybody recognizing that it's the climate crisis that they are experiencing. Farmers in rural areas are seeing their crop yields drop and they know better than almost anybody else the sensitivities and nuances between how the seasons are changing. They have to count the weeks that they are able um, to harvest the weeks that they are able um, to 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 make sure that they are tracking everything that's going on and they see it themselves. They know something that has to be done. There are communities that are experiencing record flooding in both red states and blue states. And, and there's also industry that knows and understands that the level of investment that we need cannot come from the private sector alone. Um, it must be a public investment to really dramatically transform our infrastructure, create the jobs, create the skill levels and education investments necessary for us to tackle this. And so, you know, that and that was our goal when we first launched the Green New Deal. It was to unite these coalitions. And as we continued to do that, we started to pave the way uh, for this legislation. And when it comes to someone like Joe Manchin, I think there is also just a bit of, you know, we can work as as hard as we can in politics, but then there are just fortuitous, fortuitous moments. And um, 
And part of that was when Senator Manchin spiked the Build Back Better bill about six or seven months prior to the Inflation Reduction Act, um, there was a profound uh, anger and bitterness in the party. And you don't want to work with someone who is going to, you know, string along our party for a year just just to kill one of the biggest opportunities the country has had at the last minute. And I think that um, the blowback from it, this is speculative, but I think the blowback Mm -hmm. from it might have been unexpected. And, um, And it was a moment where we needed an olive branch. It became very clear that we have to do something and we have to do something to help make people's lives better. And I actually think that the pressure from that as well, the commitment to that, um, and frankly, a Democratic Party that was willing to have some teeth um, and not just forget something like that is is actually what created a little bit of enough friction to move us forward. Really interesting take on history. And yet it looks like climate policy will be central to this fall's elections. You know, when we started this climate story of the week that we do every Tuesday on this show uh, at the beginning of 2023, the idea was that there wasn't regular climate coverage because the climate changes slowly, not like the news cycle, you know, in the media traditionally. And yet there was constant climate coverage all over the media in 2023 because there were so many climate-related extreme weather events, right? What a year it was Mm -hmm. grabbing people's attention in some of the ways that you said. And yet Trump said just a few weeks ago that... You remember this? He said he would only act like a dictator on day one in order to do two things, build that wall and drill baby drill. And I think Mm -hmm. that's his authoritarian way of tapping into many Americans' actual fears that aggressive climate policies make energy costs more expensive for years to come, faster than they save people from climate disasters. So would you make that case about cost? Because I think that's going to be important to this election year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the thing that's important um, for us to remember is that cost volatility is actually um, all about fossil fuel dependency. Um, The more that we are dependent on fossil fuels, it means the more we are dependent on global events, as we saw with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as we see with, um, with, with the choices that come out of the UAE, And as well as many other regions of the world, you know, oil and gas development and drilling in Latin America, as well as in the United States, the more dependent we are um, on oil and gas, the more crazy our prices are going to be and the more up and down our prices are going to be. And the fact that, for example, we have not developed electric or alternative energy vehicles earlier is one of the reasons why we pay such close attention to pr- to gas prices to begin with. And um, we would not be as sensitive to the changes in energy uh, costs if we weren't so fossil fuel dependent. And Donald Trump knows that, the oil and gas industry knows that, and that is why they finance huge parts of our uh, of lobbying our government in order to keep the country entirely dependent on um, on on fossil fuels. Now, if you prefer 
you know, gas cars and gas stoves, you're free to make that choice. But what we haven't had is accessible and broad choices for something else. You know, EVs have been in development, but for a very long time, they've been financially inaccessible to a lot of people in this country. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, helped change that. We got huge tax breaks for both new and used EVs, if you're trying to buy one off your neighbor or whatever that may be as well as uh, many other things that are accessible, whether it's induction stoves, heat pumps uh, for one's home, et cetera. But the oil and gas industry is deploying all of their political and special interest money towards one central goal, which is to keep virtually every American completely dependent on their product. And Donald Trump is very closely aligned with them. and. Not only that, but the point, the larger point that you made is that there's actually a, it's not a coincidence that his authoritarian tactics are tied to fossil fuels. This is a global phenomenon. And what we are seeing is authoritarianism is very, very closely linked with oil and gas interests around the world. That's Putin, that's Trump, that's folks like Bolsonaro. That's a lot of the political instability we see out of Saudi Arabia, the UAE. And I, I believe that um, it's, it, it, it is not a coincidence because you have one central industry that has a clear vested uh, pol both political and financial interest and an authoritarian that is also increasingly becoming politically unpopular, by the way. And because the vast majority of Americans believe that the U.S. should start winding down our subsidization of the fossil fuel industry. They want to see clean energy alternatives available to them and financially accessible to them. And they understand that it's it's just more volatile to be so chained to fossil fuels. And so the only way that you can really empower both, both financially a, a political sect um, is through the fossil fuel industry, the oil and gas industry. The Koch brothers are an oil and gas, or the, you know, they who had such large influence on our political system. They come from an oil and gas dynasty, and uh, it, or rather, came. One of them has passed, but um, there's that. But then you see that link crossing across the world, and the ascent of authoritarianism paired with the fact that every single one of them is very closely aligned to the fossil fuel industry and the ascent of the fossil fuel industry is not a coincidence. It's not a mistake. And in fact, the democratization of our energy system, a, which is a means of production that has been privatized and concentrated into the hands of the very few, the democratization of our energy system um, means that people have the potential. We're doing this in Puerto Rico. When you have a battery pack on your house, when the power goes out, you're not as dependent on a central system. You have a you have a backup reserve in case of an emergency. You can you can give energy to your neighbor. This is what the democratization of our energy system looks like. This is also what a fairer economic system that is less volatile for everyday people looks like as well. And that is a direct threat to authoritarianism. It's a direct threat to the extreme concentration of wealth in the hands of very of the very few, but it also represents a shift for the betterment of mankind and our democracy. 
such an interesting collection of connections. Uh, one more question on this for the moment, and then we'll take some phone calls. And listeners, if you're just tuning in, my guest is Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the context of our weekly uh, climate story of the week, which we do every Tuesday on this show on the occasion of the fifth anniversary of the Green New Deal resolution being introduced in Congress by her in 2019, along with Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. And we will also talk about some other things. You know people want to hear you on Young Voters and Biden. You know people want to hear you Mm -hmm. on Gaza. Um, And listeners, 212-433-WNYC with calls or texts if you have a question. But I see that last year, for the fourth anniversary of the resolution, you and Senator Markey released what you called a Green New Deal implementation guide designed to help individuals and communities take best advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act right away. And I'm just curious if you would make that local um, for your actual constituents in your district in Queens and the Bronx and give an example or two, if you have them, of uh, how your own implementation guide can best help them or is already doing so. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. You know, quick plug, if you are, especially if you run a community organization or are interested um, in in some of that work, uh, we have that implementation guide on our website, ocasiocortez.house.gov. And a lot of that, you know, is really inspired by what sometimes the lobbyists do, right? Where you have this big, massive bill and there's all these line items with all these financial opportunities, incentives, et cetera. And they will have folks go in and try to figure out what works and and how, um, how you know, big companies can take advantage of these bills right away. We don't and haven't historically had that same kind of effort for everyday people, community organizations, even cities and municipalities to say, hey, all this stuff passed in this bill, but you may not know how many opportunities there are in the ways that it can help you. And so our Green New Deal implementation guide does that. It shows all of the grants, all of the tax opportunities, et cetera, that are available to both individuals and and community organizations, municipalities, et cetera, that are interested um, or potentially already eligible for some of the investments in there. There's so many. I mean, I definitely encourage folks to to dig through it and see what's available to them. There are a couple of really exciting things that we've been able to do. Um, We worked uh, in order, we worked to to secure both, not just with the Inflation Reduction Act, but also um, with several other bills that that have passed Congress uh, to get a couple of major investments in New York City. Um, one was that we are receiving this, we've worked so that the city can receive nearly $69 million to transition all of our school buses uh, to electric and low emission school buses, which I can't overstate how important that is for our kids. The Bronx has some of the highest childhood asthma rates in the country and vehicles, especially large vehicle emissions are a big part of that story as to why, not the only part, but a big part. And so um, so switching our New York City school buses to electric when kids are riding in them all day has huge effects both for their health and for the overall air quality of the city. We've got, um, uh, you know, speaking on that piece, we're working on this large visionary project of uh 
capping the cross Bronx expressway that a lot of Bronx activists and Bronx environmental justice organizations um, are, are starting to mobilize for and demand. It's a major visionary, ambitious project, and they know that and they're going for it. Um, and as their member of Congress, I support them. And um, ensuring that we get the federal grants to start the studies uh, to figure out how we can scope that out and make it happen it has been a big part of our work as well. We've received huge investments uh, to put electric charging stations in Hunts Point. Uh, we are working on a reliable Clean City Queens transmission line uh, with Con Edison. And my goal has always been to show that New York's 14th congressional district can actually lead the country in showing how a clean energy transition centered on the working class um, can can really be the tip of the spear for the rest of the country. We'll continue in a minute with Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez and your calls and texts, topics in addition to climate as well. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mostly in the context of our climate story of the week. And we're going to take a pushback call here, Congresswoman, because that's part of what we do here. Of course. Bob in Rye, you're on WNYC. Hello, Bob. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, The Congresswoman's uh, list of points of issues trying to couple uh, fossil fuels with tyranny and despots and all those kinds of things are interesting is an interesting conspiracy theory but it's almost as bad as those on the right wing correlation does not make causation and that's what her litany of uh comments amounts to thank you thank you you want to respond i mean i i i totally hear it um and heard on the points on correlation uh versus causation i think we should you know i think it'd be good for us to zoom in on our own democracy and let's say we put all of these um, other folks aside if we zoom in on our democracy and we look at especially since the passage of the citizens united ruling uh, by the supreme court over 10 years ago um, what that unleashed in our democracy i think perhaps one thing that um that, that i'd hope we'd be able to have agreement on is that the role of special interests and big money in US elections is corrosive. And I hope we can at least start there as something that we can all agree on. Money plays way too big a role. Big money plays way too big a role in our elections. And when we look at some of the largest um, sources of where that money comes from, it is not just or only the fossil fuel industry. We also see huge investments from things like big pharma. We see huge investments from, for example, areas of um, of uh, of the housing and real estate industry that is incentivized on keeping prices, rent and mortgage prices uh, very high, banking, et cetera. I think when we look at the the erosion of our own democracy, we can see how special interests and big money interests have taken and moved our democracy away from everyday voters and every and the will of everyday people and towards large industries that are investing in lobbying um, our elected officials. And when you look at one of the largest sources of that, fossil fuels is one of them. And I would just say that it's something to consider. 
Another pushback question comes from a listener in a text message uh, on what they refer to as the elephant in the room. She voted no on the infrastructure bill and is now Mm -hmm. taking credit for it. She also just voted no on the recent child tax bill. Your Mm -hmm. response? Mm -hmm. So on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think it's important to note that um, I have been supportive of the bill. I was supportive of the bill during the drafting. The reason I voted no is because as representative of New York's 14th congressional district, um, I had to fight for NYCHA. And we had a deal. We had um, we we had a commitment from from the entirety of the party to ensure that we would not leave our NYCHA residents behind, that we would pair Build Back Better with the bipartisan infrastructure law, that we would try to save the Build Back Better bill. And at that time, we have folks in NYCHA that are sleeping without heat, who who still we still were discovering lead in a lot of their apartments. And I had felt at the time that people deserved both both things, that if you wanted this bill to be passed, you were going to get what you wanted, but it, it was going to pass. But if you were one of those folks that were being left behind by that bill and you wanted to see someone stand up for you and fight for you, um, that you merited that representation and deserved that representation so as well. So it was like you felt free to vote against it because you knew it would pass? Well, I think it was both. I think that even if it didn't pass, I felt like we still had the leverage. My my assessment at the time was that I felt like we could still fight for Build Back Better. We needed both of these bills, and we were working for months for both of these b- bills to be linked and to be passed. And I wasn't ready to give up on that at that juncture. I felt like we could get both. Um, Judy, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Did you want to finish an answer? No, no, I felt like we could get both. And by the way, Congress still has to act on NYCHA. And I had felt it was our best opportunity um, to date in order to to get the then 40 billion, now much more capital investment necessary to change people's lives out here. Judith in Manhattan, you're on WNYC with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Hi, Judith. I wish you were mine. And I bless your mother a thousand times for bringing you into the world. You're just wonderful. I oh, wish to you, know Gina. the policy that you have about Gaza. And mm-hmm. I also want to know how is the Democratic Party going to survive with so much anger about the Gaza policy not representing our values in humanity? Judith, thank right. you very much. I, I want to make her question about where you stand on Gaza, um, specific to the moment, if that's okay. And it's Mm -hmm. about what kind of ceasefire you're calling for. I think everybody knows you've been in the ceasefire camp. But right now, many in the protest movement are calling for a permanent ceasefire. Mm -hmm. But there's also a UN proposal set to be coming from the United States that would call for a temporary ceasefire, contingent on all the hostages being released, and that also warns against Israeli action in Rafah that doesn't include real protection for those civilians, which Israel has not announced. So are you for one version or the other of a ceasefire? Well, you know, I think... I want to make sure that we're that we're all kind of on the same page here with these terms, because 
ceasefire is both a legal term, it is a diplomatic term, but at the end of the day, a permanent ceasefire, what that means to folks is a lasting peace. And that is absolutely what I am in support of. Now, folks from a different perspective um, would say, and from a legal perspective would say, ceasefire technically is a diplomatic term for a time where, um, where both sides cease hostilities, cease military hostilities as they negotiate the terms of a lasting peace. And so that the term ceasefire de facto is temporary because of the nature of, of that mean. To me, I think that, you know, I don't want to get into the muck of arguing over terms because I think the general principle is the same here, which is that I do believe that we need an immediate ceasefire in Gaza and that we must negotiate the terms and figure out the terms of a lasting peace. Now, to Judith's larger question about our stance here, I am extraordinarily concerned with the Netanyahu government, their opposition to President Biden, open defiance of President Biden, particularly when it comes to the establishment of a Palestinian state. I am highly concerned about the continued indiscriminate bombing of Gazans. I agree with Judith that this is against our values and that this is not what Americans believe in, nor what we signed up for. It's important to also acknowledge completely the horror, the trauma of what happened on October 7th and um, and the, the complete indiscriminate violence uh, that Hamas had committed. If you are an individual, even, you know, even if you take Netanyahu at his word and says, and where they say that their goal is the complete elimination of Hamas, that is not what this campaign is accomplishing here. Anyway, it, it's not what it's accomplishing here. What it is accomplishing is tens of thousands of innocent Gazans being killed, nearly 70% of whom are women and children. We are seeing a complete a, a, a blockade on humanitarian assistance, food, water. And what I am particularly concerned by is the U.S. role because to a certain extent, Netanyahu, he is he is a head of state of a separate country. But for us and our decisions, you know, there was a proposal recently put uh, passed by the United States Senate that would block UNRWA funding um, entirely, which is the main corridor of humanitarian assistance to Gaza. And um, I it, it we should not be enabling the or even widening the, uh, the the aperture of possibility for an even greater humanitarian disaster and what we're seeing there um, mm. in in Gaza. And mm. I think that that we have to get we are getting to a point where um, we can't we 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 cannot participate in this innocent loss of life. We can't. We can't. In the long run, do you support a two-state solution? I believe so, um, and I I think that it, you know, what I am concerned by is, uh, and I have, I have previously stated that I believe that the current legal regime that we are seeing in Israel, particularly with respect to Palestinians, uh, it uh, amounts to apartheid, and. 
I think that a, a two-state democratic solution um, is, is one that I would support, uh, particularly when what we are seeing in the rhetoric of Netanyahu is, frankly, rhetoric that talks about the complete assimilation of uh, and, and the takeover of Gaza. We see what's happening with settlements in the West Bank. And, um, and I think that what we cannot stand for is, uh, is, all, is for all Palestinians and, and, and Gazans to be subjugated um, under one larger unjust state, uh, which is the rhetoric that Netanyahu is using um, and seems to be what he is insinuating. Part, when, especially both with what he is saying and his outright resistance to President Biden, I, I believe that um, defending uh, the establishment of a Palestinian state is important. I think it is. We are now at the juncture where, you know, I it, it is. While President Biden's words have are are very much appreciated when he discusses that and acknowledges publicly that. Netanyahu and, and Israel has gone too far um, and gone overboard. We need to have American dis- diplomacy and our actions reflect that judgment and that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that answer sounds like you're also not on the side of that portion of the protest movement, which calls for the other kind of one state solution, no Jewish state per se, uh, rather one pluralistic state, you're coming out for a two-state solution as opposed to that, if I'm hearing you correctly. Well, ultimately, you know, ultimately, this is about the determination that Israelis and Palestinians make. They are the ones that, whose sovereignty needs to be respected. Um, But I... I, I, the reason I am in favor of a two-state solution is because that is what that sovereignty has uh, determined in the past. Um, and, but I, I don't think it is our role or my role to impose a solution from the United States onto the region. I think we have to respect the sovereignty of the region and support a lasting peace. And at this juncture, that is what a two-state solution, that's what it is in my judgment at this juncture that that's where we're at, yes. So last question, and it's about President Biden, and then I know you have to go. Um, There's been increased talk recently of whether Biden is actually still the party's best bet to defeat Donald Trump, assuming Trump is the Republican nominee. Part of that is over the loss of faith in Biden um, by a lot of young people, the kind of people who would be in your core constituency, uh, not just your district's core constituency, but, you know, your constituency around the country as a national mm-hmm. figure um, with respect to the fact that Biden only talks tough but doesn't act tough with respect to Netanyahu. And also just because some people think he's not presenting well anymore and the age issue, fair or not, is going to make him loose. So my simple question is, do you still think Joe Biden is the best Democratic nominee. At, at, yes, you know, and I know some folks, um, you know, when it comes to the response on that and as to why, I think it, I think we need to look at the landscape here. Um, I think, first of all, there's 
there there's the la- the general landscape that we are working in. There's also the point in the process that we are working in. We have Democratic primaries. We have a small D Democratic process of going about this. And, and our Democratic process has yielded a result. And for me, just from starting with just a a due process and a democracy point, I I think it's important to acknowledge that this this is what our democracy has yielded, and respecting our democratic processes um, is it, it, it is part of what determines our nominee. Now, it, I, I understand there may be people of differing opinions. I, of course, believe in primaries. I came to office in a primary. We've had primaries. And when we look at where these concerns uh, largely come are coming from, a lot of them come, you know, it, it's a lot of media figures discussing this, et cetera. But we, I mean, you look at the South Carolina primary, President Biden won with over 90% of the vote. And you had primary challengers in that vote. Um, New Hampshire, President Biden wasn't even on the ballot and he won overwhelmingly through a writing campaign. And so whether we, I think whether any given person, any individual, whether President Biden is their chosen nominee or not, um, uh, or, or is our preferred nominee or not, this is part of, this is what our process has yielded. And when we look at the votes on the ground, we are not seeing a resurgence for someone like Dean Phillips. We are not seeing um, that those similar concerns reflected in the electorate. So I think there's that that first piece. Um, the second piece, you know, especially when it when it comes to what is being made of the age issue, um, I I do think personally, that uh, a lot of it is unfair. Um, You know, yeah, the president might mix up a few words. I've mixed up a few words. He's also handling a war, two impeachment attempts by a rogue party, um, as well as, I I mean, this is probably one of the most challenging times um, in in recent history uh, for our governance in terms of the strain on all of us. Um, But you know, I think it's, listen, I'm, I, and, and I say this as a member of the party, not traditionally in the president's camp. I'm a staunch progressive. Um, a lot, I've spent a lot of the president's first term being a thorn in his side. He didn't want to do student loan forgiveness. We pushed him into forgiving student loans um, for, for, for millions of people in this country, and they're still trying to push more. Um, you know, climate was not top of the agenda. We made it top of the agenda. There are there are grassroots fights that we don't always win, but we are winning really important ones. And um, but I, you know, I've spent most of this term, <laughs> most of my most of his first term being a thorn in his side um, in order to to push and agitate uh, for victories for everyday people and. I think it's important to note that while he is not necessarily predisposed to to always being in agreement with us, he's also movable. And as uh, someone who seeks to elevate 
the power of grassroots movements, uh, a movable target is one that I think uh, it, it is something to consider, um, as opposed to an unknown and a potentially unmovable unknown. Well, I know you got to go. I will just say, as a point of pride, speaking of primaries, uh, we are proud that we had you on before you were famous, when you were a little-known <laughs> activist running against Joe Crowley in a local primary. And yes. And we're glad that you continue to come on and discuss the big issues of, the, of our time with us from time to time. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, thank you for coming on today. Of course. Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate it. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. WNYC. The latest article by New Yorker staff writer Gia Tolentino begins with a kind of hilarious moment in a certain way in which a convicted marijuana dealer named Helen Miller gets a tip from another person incarcerated with him who happens to be Anthony Weiner. Yes, that Anthony Weiner, the disgraced former congressman. Weiner tells Miller in prison that New York State's new legal cannabis law includes first priority for dispensary licenses for people with marijuana convictions. Gia calls it a legal weed as reparations program. That encounter with Anthony Weiner was years ago. But as you may have noticed, New York still has very few legal dispensaries open. So the heart of the article is about why, including some of the difficulties of doing legal cannabis in a more social justice-oriented way than any other state. There are some successes, which he also names, some broken dreams of people who are promised better, some hope for the future, yes, and even a dispute over whether New York weed is of lower quality than that in other legal states because of certain growing rules. The article is called In the Weeds. Gia, always good to have you. Welcome back to WNYC. It's it's great to be here, Brian. Anything more to say about that encounter in prison between Howell Miller and Anthony Weiner? Maybe it changed Miller's thinking about his future or anything else? Well, Howell Howell Miller, like so many people, you know, frankly, black and brown people who were incarcerated over marijuana, he was having this experience where he was in jail watching people and, you know, mostly white people with considerable amounts of capital behind them get get quite rich doing the same thing that he was in prison for. You know, so he was like, just why a just why am I still in jail? And then Wiener told him about this program called the card program. He ended up applying. And I just want to say uh, Howie Miller did get his license. So hopefully there'll, there'll be a store, two buds in the Bronx, hopefully open this spring. All right. Look for two buds in the Bronx, weed users (laughs) in the Bronx, um, opened by Howell Miller, who leads off Gia's article in The New Yorker. The idea of legal weed as reparations, it has several components. Can you lay some of those out for us? Right. So so New York, with its legal weed rollout, as you said, tried to do something that 
no state has even really tried to do um, in any sort of with, with anything near this level of commitment. And certainly no state has succeeded in achieving anything like social and economic equity in its legal weed industry. Uh, because, you know, this is a product that was used as a cudgel against against minority communities and poor communities. And as it has been legalized in more and more states across the country, it has succeeded in, you know, mostly making white people with financial backing rich. So there's this big problem hovering over weed legalization and New York, you know, passed this, you know, fantastically progressive law in 2021, the MRTA that, um, that laid out these provisions that 50% of licenses would be given out to uh, social and economic equity applicants who included women, people of color, service disabled veterans, distressed farmers, and, you know, crucially people who had lived in zip codes where police had made disproportionate arrests. Um, it expunged hundreds of thousands of convictions um, and it allocates 40% of, of weed tax revenue to community initiatives in those over-policed communities. So it's this fantastic law. No one, no other state has ever done anything like it. Um, and then it's, you know, it's it's where this meets the reality of highly advanced capitalism that things get complicated. Right, and so listeners, um, help Gia Tolentino report what might someday be the follow-up to this article. Are you in the legal cannabis business now in New York State, or are you trying to get into it? Talk about some of the bureaucratic hurdles, legal hurdles, financial hurdles, uh, or if this is going well for you, report that too. First priority on the phone will go to anybody who is in or trying to get in the legal cannabis business in New York State, the rollout being as slow as it has been, 212 433 WNYC. Other people may call with comments or questions, uh, but if anybody happens to be listening who's in the business or trying to get into the business in New York State in particular, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Call or text and you'll get first priority. Um, further to what you were just describing, Gia, part of the idea as you write is to stave off corporate capture of this mm -hmm. new sector of the economy. Has that happened in earlier legal states? I would say in almost every legal state, you know, what happens is that, it, what often happens is that there's a medical marijuana industry that predates the adult use or recreational one, right? And, and those tend to be dominated by a handful of corporations called multi-state operators, MSOs, that again, are highly capitalized, are, you know, are have, tend to have zero minority ownership, but they, they're they fully ver vertically integrated. They work extremely, they they do everything from growing to the, the point of retail. And, and, and they have a lot of lobbying money and, you know, they, they successfully sort of pressure legislators state by state to say, wow, you know, weed is a mess. Let's get it out of the hands of, you know, the, the grubby people who were in the illegal industry and let's have nice, clean corporate, you know, like it's, it's a very, it's, it can be a daunting thing to think about taking this industry legal and corporations have a, a playbook to, to capture it before, you know, and, and, and do what corporations are doing right now, which is corner the market with extremely low prices. And once everyone's priced out, raise them. And New York also designed its industry 
to stave off that capture. Vertical integration is mostly prohibited, um, except for a very small license category called the micro business. That's intended to give people many, many entry points into the supply chain there rather than give its 10 or 11 medical marijuana companies first access to the recreational market, which, uh, you know, would have made things much quicker and more efficient, but then would have resulted in a pretty near immediate corporate capture. Um, They initially had a waiting period that required them to stay out at the retail point for for three years. That has since changed since there has been this need to get stores open quicker uh, because as I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, there are illegal stores on basically every block of the city. But New York also really admirably, commendably designed its law to try to give small business operators, uh, farmers in upstate New York, you know, people, all these people who are normally instantly shut out of the incredibly expensive, risky, high, high capital demands industry of legal marijuana. New York really tried to give them first shot. Yeah. And one of the obstacles, as I understand it from your article and elsewhere, is that the state was sued by other people on the priorities list, sort of on the social justice list, but who came in below people with past marijuana convictions for dispensary licenses, uh, and also by others without any social justice components. They went to court, too, uh, with their hopes of getting into the business. So what what was their claim? Um, why was this sort of considered legally out of bounds to do this, um, what seems like, you know, such a kind of good cause? Mm-hmm. And where does that stand? Well, so the, the CARD program, this flagship program where, where the first several hundred retail dispensary licenses would be given to people with, with marijuana convictions, this was not originally written in the 2021 law. It was a creation of the Office of Cannabis Management, which was kind of created by that law. And so there was a little, there was a little or a lot of legal room to, um, to lodge suits like this. Um, and and one of them was by a group of service disabled veterans who said, you know, we in the law were supposed to get first priority. Why have you invented this new category? But uh, what immediately happened after that was a group of of corporations were allowed to join as plaintiffs on that lawsuit. And I, I mean, overarchingly, what you have is is a lot of interests, many of them corporate, most of them corporate, saying you're not allowed to shut me out, basically. Like it's, New York is trying to do things differently than has ever been done and to hold off these interests. And, you know, these corporations, they have a lot of money to tie up equity programs and litigation. This has happened elsewhere in other states. Um, Ohio, for its medical program, designated 15% of licenses to minority-owned businesses. And that was ruled unconstitutional after after a series of lawsuits. Um, so, you know, the the status quo is the status quo because of because of things like this, right? There's um anytime you try to disempower corporate money, that corporate money will claw claw its way, has a way of clawing its its uh yeah. clawing its way back in. Yeah. And so where where does this stand? I mean, you mentioned um 
that that uh, person incarcerated with Anthony Weiner, after a lot of frustration, a lot of obstacles that you lay out in the article, did get his dispensary licenses. Um, you have a, a great stat in there about um, some crazy high percentage of all the black-owned dispensaries in America now being in New York State, with even as few dispensaries are open in the state. So uh, where does this stand? It's still... I think it's still early. I think, you know, where it stands is that, yeah, New York has more than has more than doubled the number of black owned dispensaries in all of in all of America within this first basically this first year of legal uh, of legal stores being open and hardly and still barely any of stores, uh, barely any stores have been open relative to what is coming. The New York just um, issued its first licenses in the general round of applications, a large proportion of whom of, of the licenses did go to people in social and economic equity categories. The The industry is still opening up. We're just seeing the first sort of bloom of the legal industry, and we'll see whether or not this competition starts to starts to put any of these illegal stores out of business. It's like what ha what has happened in new york is it's it has been a slow rollout due to the fact that new york has just steadfastly prioritized equity and it that has resulted in the industry being much slower to get on its feet than if the corporations had just come right in as quickly and efficiently as possible and it's and i kind of see it as it is kind of an inevitable trade-off. You can't, if you're going to prioritize social equity in this industry, you can't have corporate efficiency. There was going to be a lag time that was going to get messy. There's going to be these lawsuits. Uh -huh. And New York is, for now, I mean, the Kathy Hochul has started to signal kind of discontent and disapproval. There's talk about revisiting certain aspects of the 2021 law. But uh, New York is still... the the train is still running to try to do things differently than's ever been done. Yeah, it is a funny kind of contradiction to think that the first priority would go to people who both had marijuana convictions and had successful business backgrounds, legal yeah. business backgrounds. So like how many people like that are they? As it happens, Howell Miller, who you profiled in that article, who met Anthony Weiner, uh, used to run a construction business. And he had a weed conviction, so he was, like, perfectly placed at that intersection. But has that been an obstacle? Because if they want to do this sort of social justice rollout for people who've been incarcerated or otherwise convicted of marijuana offenses, uh, not a lot of them have the business background? Right. I think the CARD program is emblematic of something that I thought about a lot while I was writing this piece, which is it's... It's impossible to address the harms that were, you know, that that the war on drugs and marijuana's illegality wrought on black and brown and poor communities with any, you know, with with any sort of program in like legal marijuana can't undo what decades of incarceration did. Right. And, and even something as. I think thoughtfully designed as the card program, like you said, how many people come out of prison, you know, with all and with a weed conviction, with all of the things that that does in terms of your housing prospects, your employment prospects, all these things, how many people are able to then mount a successful small business? Um, the people who do, 
the, the thinking I think on OCM's part was that these people are clearly they're scrappy, they're hustlers, they can do it. They're they they are utterly deserving of this first shot. But of course, there are you know there are so many people who who were never able to do that. There you know there's a guy in my article who was not you know, really wanted to apply for a card license, realized he wasn't eligible because basically, you know, he he dealt weed, got convicted, and that's just remained his job. And so he doesn't have proof of that. And I think there are even certain things like because stop and frisk policing was so heavily directed towards men that the card program inevitably uh-huh. in trying to make up for that effectively gave priority to men, you know, to uh-huh. men again. It, it's yeah. it's a it's an example of how just crafting legislation to try to undo or repair even a little bit of the vast ravages of policing. It's complicated. It can never be complete. As we talk with Gia Tolentino about New York State's bumpy legal cannabis rollout, 212-433-WNYC. And Tom and Clinton Hill, you're on WNYC. Hello, Tom. Hey, Brian. Second time on. Listen every day. Um, yeah, I was really excited to hear you all take up this topic today. Um, it's a little tangential, but I'm opening a bar. And last September, I went to a community board meeting in Brooklyn, uh, CB2, and before to, to get approved for my liquor license. So um, before they did all the liquor licenses, they handled uh, marijuana permits. And pretty much all of them got approved. But similar to the way they do liquor licenses, community members can come in and protest the location. Um, and one of them was in, like, kind of prime Fort Greene, just a few blocks uh, east of the park. And someone got up to protest it, and they said, what about the, the schools around here, blah, blah, blah. And one of the community board members, she raised her hand and said, hold up, hold up. There's five liquor stores within that block. If we want to talk about what the real problem is, let's talk about the liquor stores. Um, and she just kind of shooed away these questions about, Maybe weed is a problem for kids, but just, I mean, I thought it was really interesting um, that they just handed out all these permits, but then still, there's still so few actual um, stores in Brooklyn. Tom, thank you. Interesting, interesting anecdote. Uh, We're going to talk about the illegal stores in a minute, uh, like in no other state, apparently, according to to Gia's article. Um, but I don't think you reported in this particular piece about siting, that is location um, debates. We know that there's been uh, opposition in Harlem to placing a dispensary on 125th Street there, like around the Apollo Theater. Um, Tom mentioned it in Brooklyn, though it was shooed away in that particular case, if he's got his story right. Anything on that? Yeah, it's also almost all of Long Island. Most municipalities said no, which has resulted in like one dispensary out there. Strain Star is just absolutely crushing it in sales because people are commuting mm. from all over Long Island. But but yeah, zoning is complicated uh, within this within the five boroughs. I believe that a legal dispensary has to be a thousand feet from other dispensaries. I think perhaps the same distance from any schools, churches, etc. But that actually points to. Um, that actually points to the Ill, the illegal stores they can and do or they have been allowed to and are opening wherever they want they're opening up right next to schools they're opening at 8 a.m they you know there is not like that that should be a point in favor of 
these legal stores because they at least will have a much stricter sense, uh, much stricter set of compliance laws in terms of, you know, they will be shut down if they sell to minors, like things that the the weed bodegas that are on every block, um, you know, are are just are just doing whatever they want essentially unimpeded, uh, which is, you know, a huge problem also. But but that I think is a point in favor of the the legal stores, it's just that we don't have that many, is they they w- will be abiding by all of these zoning rules that the illegal ones currently do not abide by. Have, have you been able to get to the bottom of, because I'll tell you a lot of our callers, a lot of our texters are asking a version of this, have you gotten at all to the bottom of why it's so hard to so shut many. down these illegal dispensaries. Your your description mm-hmm. of them is really interesting. Like, while the legal dispensaries are not allowed to show anything in the window, they can't be seeming to advertise marijuana. You have all these illegal ones that look like Apple stores <laughs> with uh, the glass windows and big leaves in the oh, window yeah. and all of that stuff. And then there's the like the bodega, the sort of tacky weed bodega model where it's just like flashing signs, just like 420 blaze it bonanza, you know, like just like weed, 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 weed. Um, yeah, I think, well, as we all know, like one of the most incredible things about this city is that entrepreneurs will fill the tiniest crack in the market as soon as there is a crack to be filled, right? Like all of the empty storefronts bloom with Mother's Day bouquets, you know, for three days only around Mother's Day or Valentine's, right? Like like this is a scrappy city full of people that will fill every need. And there's a lot of real estate, a lot of empty storefronts, you know, the conditions were right in that respect to allow this to happen. There obviously was a such, there was and is such a long delay between when weed was even decriminalized and then legalized for adult use. And then now the legal store is opening. There's been a lot of time for these stores to open. And, you know, I'm editorializing a little bit here, but it seems to me like police were basically told at some point, like, you know, you're not allowed to stop and frisk anymore. You're not allowed to use marijuana odor as this pretext to, you know, shake down any person or driver that you would like. And, you know, in 2020, you got this signal that the city apparently wants less policing. And so now that all of these stores exist and city and state agencies are kind of trying to, or, there are a lot of city and state agencies that could ostensibly have responsibility and who all should share in the responsibility of shutting these stores down. But there are just so many of them and no one really wants to take the responsibility of doing it. The At least the police arm, the enforcement arm, uh, that aspect, the, the will is not there. The will is not there on the part of the police to do anything about it is certainly what it has seemed like to me in reporting. And you make a pointed comparison in the piece saying uh, they don't seem to have any trouble busting churro ladies. Right. Yes. Churro ladies like people sending people in Corona Park selling selling their tamales like cops love to bust vendors, you know, in 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 a way that I think is, you know, pathological. But but here I think there's a real there are civil and criminal uh, violations that are occurring here. I mean, even selling weed to minors, that's a felony. And. You know, I walked around uh, city council member Gail Brewer's district with her, you know, went to a store that was right across from a high school, opened at 8 a.m., you know, closed at 2 a.m. There, 
there's plenty to enforce were there the will, you know, if the will to enforce uh, existed. Gia Tolentino with us from The New Yorker. Her latest article, In the Weeds, about why the bumpy rollout of legal cannabis in New York State. One more call. Pete in Brooklyn, who says he has a grower's permit. Pete, you're on WNYC. Hi. Hey, bye. Real quick. The real reason, the problem is, is there's really only 10 dispensaries in, in a population of 6 million people, but they gave out thousands of grower permits, right? So now we, the growers have to get rid of our pot, which we were promised that would happen. So now we have pot that's rotting. So that's why um, there's these, everyone, there's these pop, um, pop-up pop stores or whatever you want to call them. It's because we don't want to throw our pot away because it does have a shelf life. You know what I mean? I hear you, and, Pete. Um, yeah. it's It's actually really pathetic that there's only... There's only two dispensaries in all upstate New York. It just it just blows my mind. Yeah. So and for you, really, as, they, they as, should as have should have followed Oklahoma. What did Oklahoma do? They just let everyone grow, and and, and they have more dispensaries than California. Huh. Pete, thank they you very much. Cards. Yeah. It's almost, and we've actually talked about this on the show once before, Gia, but it's almost the reason to let the illegal dispensaries keep going for a while, right? Because there are all these people who've been given growing permits, um, and so they've got all this legal flower, but there aren't the dispensaries open to sell it legally. Right. I think a recent estimate was 250,000 pounds, and, um, and, and yeah, I mean, and but also I will say a lot of the weed that's on the shelves at the at the illicit stores is like very clearly marked and QR coded as as California weed too. You know, it's not uh-huh. it's not only that these it's not as if these illicit stores are sort of like nobly selling upstate farmers yeah, products, right. you know, which which some of them right. are, but it's um and you know, even in Oklahoma, I want to point out that is a really good comparison. Oklahoma, extremely low regulation, really low bar- barrier to entry. I think there was, you know. Yeah, an enormous glut of supply and and you know retail dispensaries and all of this stuff, but there was so much now that the majority of the product is being diverted out of state, which is you know illegal, and a lot that you know the price is plunged, and a lot of the dispensaries and growing operations are now shutting down. And I think this is just go. This just goes to say, there is there is no state still that has cracked this problem of how to open up a legal market, a legal adult use market that is just in any way, that focuses on equity in any way, and is also functional, that can also compete with the black market. That's a problem in every other legal state. In uh-huh. California, most weed purchases are still made, you know, in the black market. It's it is an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing um, that legislate legislators and agencies are still experimenting with. That was something that surprised me from your article, that in California, which has a very well-developed legal dispensary market, the illegal marijuana market has continued to grow. How mm-hmm. could that be? Well, it's cheaper. That you know, that's for one thing, right? I mean, right. there no like one one of the reasons that the illicit stores are flourishing is because you know there's there's no compliance. There's they're not paying these incredibly high taxes. They're not um, and. And because of a provision called 280E, federally, people who are in the legal weed business, they often, you know, they can't write off all of these ex- 
expenses. They can't do taxes in a typical way. They can they can't really bank anywhere, and so people often end up paying up to eighty percent in effective in their effective tax rate. And so it's expensive to be in this business, which is one of the reasons it's you know dominated by white guys that have worked at Goldman Sachs. You know, it's it's really expensive. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of startup capital, and and consumers. You know, if weed is cheaper at this one store next door to the other that they both basically look the same can't really tell that one is legal and one's illegal but one has an eighth for $25 less you know consumers go to the one that's cheaper and so sure. that's why that's, that's why, why it's still like that last topic quality listener <laughs> and you write about it in the article but a listener writes regarding cannabis quality the flower is definitely weaker though it's still much stronger than the weed your parents grew up with, as person writes. Uh, they say, I was told by a legal dispensary that New York cannabis is largely grown outdoors, which you report in your article. And this person concludes, um, three hours up the road in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, marijuana dispensaries are prolific and they have more sophisticated indoor growing operations. And subsequently, the cannabis is stronger as measured by the label THC percentages. So is New York weed, if you have reporting on this, as good a high as Massachusetts weed <laughs> or California weed or any other? So, so the decision to, to you know, start up the growing operations by licensing like outdoor up, upstate grows was made from this desire to establish a sustainable, you know, for environmental principles, because indoor weed growing can be like tremendously resource intensive, et cetera. That being said, the, and you know, the outdoor weed stuff, people call it dad weed personally, perfectly fine for, for my tastes. But, um, but you know, if you're like a serious weed head and you want stuff that is like really intense and dank and, you know, like beautiful and very very sticky and you know all really loud all of these things um out dad weed outdoor weed is not that that being said now that new york has opened up um grow licenses to indoor grow this year there's the there are micro businesses that are going to be allowed to grow indoors some of them are legacy growers like this one guy the collector that i interviewed in my article people that do grow you know weed for weed heads, you know, this, like, it'll be strong, it'll be potent, it'll be very dank, you know, that stuff can now, that stuff is starting to get grown in New York. And soon, you may be able to buy it in more places. The article is called In the Weeds. Gia Tolentino is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Gia, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, now a Black History Month segment for this presidential election year, remembering Shirley Chisholm's groundbreaking run for the Democratic nomination in 1972. Chisholm had a motto, not just for her historic campaign, but throughout her entire political life and career, many of you know it, unbought and unbossed. In 1968, Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman elected to Congress. She was a founding member of the Congressional Black Caucus, as well as the National Women's Political Caucus. And when she tossed her hat in the ring for the Democratic Party nomination in the 1972 presidential race, she had little support from the political establishment. Here was a candidate outspoken on behalf of civil rights, the Equal Rights Amendment, and the dignity of the poor during a period marked by economic recession. Perhaps ahead of her time, she supported a minimum family income. 
And in an era of the FBI's so-called COINTELPRO investigations of civil rights leaders, she publicly opposed wiretapping and domestic spying. Here is Shirley Chisholm announcing her candidacy for the nomination in 1972. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. I stand here now without endorsements from many big-name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop. I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America. Shirley Chisholm declaring her candidacy on January 25th, 1972 in Brooklyn. Let's talk about this important and inspiring piece of history with Zinga Frazier, Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and Women's and Gender Studies and Director of the Shirley Chisholm Project at Brooklyn College. She's also co-curating a forthcoming exhibit, exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York, marking the 100th anniversary of Shirley Chisholm's birth. She would turn 100 this November. Professor Frazier, thanks so much for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me. By way of introduction, do you want to say a little bit about what the mission of the Shirley Chisholm Project at Brooklyn College is? Of course. Um, The Shirley Chisholm Project on Brooklyn Women's Activism for over 12 years has served as a research and archival entity that preserves the history of Chisholm's political life um, and the activism of women in Brooklyn. We also are the repository of um, Chisholm's uh, archive, where we also facilitate free and public Um, educational programming. So in the tradition of Chisholm, the project also examined social and political issues that grounded Chisholm's political life, like issues around women in politics, equity in education, racial and economic um, disparities, as well as criminal justice and immigration. And listeners, we invite your phone calls on the 1972 Shirley Chisholm presidential campaign taking oral history calls, as we like to do in our history segments. So is anybody listening right now who happened to vote for Shirley Chisholm in 1972? Is anybody listening right now who just remembers Shirley Chisholm on the campaign trail for president in 1972? Or anybody else with a personal story that relates to that presidential campaign, the Shirley Chisholm candidacy in particular? 212 WNYC 212-433-9692. Call or text for our guest, Zinga Frazier from Brooklyn College. Uh, So Shirley Chisholm grew up on Prospect Avenue in Crown Heights and would go on to Teachers College at Columbia for her master's. What else would you like to add about her early life and how it set her up for politics? Well, she's also an alum of Brooklyn College as well. Um, And, you know, Chisholm, as an early, she, you know, she grows, grows up in Brooklyn. She comes out of a rich Caribbean um, Barbados, uh, where her parents are both from. 
um, and she's part of that uh, quilting or trajectory of emerging Black political Caribbean immigrants who emerge um, in the 1930s. Um, and so a lot of her life revolved around Brooklyn, but also earlier before she, you know, um, gets into politics, she also lives in Barbados for a number of years and has her primary education um, in Barbados. So she's also a very kind of diasporic figure and subject. And in 1972, the context of that campaign for the Democratic no nomination, the field included South Dakota Senator George McGovern, who, of course, got the nomination that year. He ran very much as an anti-Vietnam War candidate. But Chisholm yeah. was also anti-war. So how did she distinguish herself from McGovern? In many ways, she distinguished herself from McGovern in that she had a particular... Um, belief that she wanted to create a coalition that really crossed age, race, gender, class, and she found a way to collectively um, bargain or try to collectively bargain um, the platform for the Democratic campaign. And she was against abortion. McGovern um, does go against uh she was against, uh, she was pro-choice, right? Um, and so she's really trying to push the McGovern campaign and the Democratic Party to really come out um, in support of abortion um, and a woman's right to choose. And at that time, McGovern was very um, leery about taking that stance. If we assume that Chisholm knew she wasn't going to win the nomination, what was she trying to achieve by running? She's really trying to change the platform. She's trying to not only uh, bring in new and vibrant people into the Democratic Party, and she's really trying to say, we want a true Democratic uh, Party that represents all people, specifically marginalized people. So Chisholm doesn't necessarily think that she's going to win, but she believes that she has a position to really change the platform and the policies of the Dem Democratic Party. Let's take a phone call with a memory. Teresa in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Teresa. Hi, how are you? Uh, thanks for putting me on. Second time caller, devout listener. Um, Thank you. Shirley Chisholm used to live in my building. My mother was friendly with her, but she was, Shirley Chisholm was friendly with all of the neighbors. And she was just very, a kind-hearted person, a loving person. She was the type of person, she'd say, how are you doing? Uh, how are the kids? And things like that. And that's just on Livingston Street in Brooklyn, between Borum and Court. Remembering Shirley Chisholm, the person, not just Shirley Chisholm, the politician. Beautiful. Maria in Newton, New Jersey, around WNYC. Hi, Maria. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay, so thank you for taking my call. It's my first time calling. Um, I'm a retired journalist, and I had the opportunity of meeting some quite lovely people, and uh, Shirley Chisholm was one of them. Um, one of the things I did want to say is that Shirley said that it was harder for her, it was very difficult to run a, as a black person for Congress, but it was harder to, to run as a, as a woman to Congress. And I, I, it just amazed me, you know, that here we are now, and I was discussing this with your 
uh, screener that, you know, the vice president of the United States is, is a, a very beautiful, intelligent black woman, and, you know, they give her such a difficult time. But it, it's not for Shirley Chisholm, and, you know, she stands on shoulders of many, many people, but Shirley Chisholm was a dynamo. She was energetic. She was smart. She was pushing for the ERA, which I've written about the ERA many, many times. And she, you know, she, she, she had a vision, just like Martin Luther King did. She had a vision, and she was pushing for it. And uh, it's, it's a great memory. Maria, thank you for that memory. Yeah, you know, Professor Frazier, we, we're doing this in the context of Black History Month. We could just as easily be doing this in the context of Women's History Month, right? Yes, definitely, definitely. She trans, you know, transforms, and you know, we could do it any other month either, because <laughs> um, sure. she's so relevant, right? She's so relevant to a discussion. You know, Chisholm is talking about police brutality during her time when you know there isn't even a term around, you know, around the prison industrial complex. She's, you know, engaging in a discourse that is talking about intersectionality. So the ways in which your your caller discussed, you know, Chisholm and even the opening um of the segment really tells really talks to the ways in which Chisholm saw herself as an intersectional figure, right? And what the toll of being black and being a woman, but also being someone who's unbought and unbought. She was disliked more because of her radicalism around policies and her inability to cow down to, you know, machine politics and and a large, you know, strong and powerful um, Democratic Party. And that's what, you know, gets, you know, even though we love Chisholm in this present moment, we all have to remember that Chisholm was not beloved in many ways and because of the politics that she um, embodied. And it's so interesting to listen back to her speeches from the campaign trail in 1972. One thing that's striking is her approach to power. Here's just a 10-second clip uh, from the speech we heard a bit of earlier introducing her campaign, 10 Seconds of Shirley Chisholm. Leadership does not mean putting the air to the ground to follow public opinion, but to have the vision of what is necessary and the courage to make it possible. And more oral history. Lucy in Westchester, you're on WNYC. Hi, Lucy. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for this, and thank you for all your shows. Um, I just was a 10-year-old white girl in a tiny town in Minnesota in 1972, and Shirley Chisholm was just my hero, absolutely. And maybe my mom introduced her to me. I don't know, but I just was fascinated by her, and I mean... Her, her, you know, views on women probably what is what drew me to her. But I'm going to be honest; it was also her clothes. Huh. <laughs> I grew up to be a costume designer, and she was so well dressed, and just the way she could speak, and how forceful and articulate. And then she just looked so fantastic. I just, I was mesmerized by her. I had Shirley Chisholm for president signs and pins that I made. I just, I just thought she in was amazing. In a small town in Minnesota. Lucy, thank, <laughs> yeah. thank you very much. So at the uh, Museum of the City of New York, Shirley Chisholm Centennial exhibit that you're co-curating, Dr. Fraser, there going to be anything about her clothes? 
Yes, we actually have a number of, of items <laughs> um, from the film because I was a historical consultant for the new film that's coming out on at Netflix on the 22nd of March oh. um, with Regina King and John Ridley as the writer and producer. Um, and we'll have uh, some some great pieces of, of, of Chisholm's um, clothing. And talking about Chisholm as, you know, her clothing and her style uh, also is replicative of her being bold and unbought and unbossed and, you know, going outside of the norm of what we consider to be the, the dress of politicians. Dawn in Manhattan worked on her campaign in 1966 when she ran for Congress. He says, hi, Don, you're on WNYC, and I apologize, we have just 30 seconds for you. Hi, Brian. Yes, uh, Edna Kelly was a Democratic machine uh, congresswoman for uh, Bethesda Stuyvesant, and she uh, very famously said that she's not worried about the civil rights uh, people uh, in Bethesda Stuyvesant because you know she knows she knows how to deal with her monkeys, and Shirley Chisholm right. grabbed a hold of that and ran with that. You know, right. and that was one of the things that got her going uh, in '66. Don, thank you so much. So last question, Professor Frazier. Um, how did Chisholm's campaign in 72 set the stage for Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns the following decade? And if you think in any way, even for Barack Obama? I think in many ways it tested the possibilities of what forming a coalition that really crossed age and race and gender and class. Uh, it's something that uh, Jesse Jackson, you know, connects to when he uh, envisions a rainbow coalition. And when we think about the Obama uh, election, the importance of young people um, at the center of Chisholm's 72 campaign were young people and and also them getting the right to vote um, at the age of 18. And so all of those things, I think, were really a way in which was a litmus test that allowed upcoming people who were not necessarily involved in politics, but got involved in politics because Chisholm redefined um, what presidential elections should look like and who had the capability and should be able to run. And so she's saying, you know, this is not the domain of just white men. Uh, we need to create a way in which we see ourselves um, at the highest levels in this country. Um, and so for those of you who are also interested in oral histories, we do a number of oral histories at the Chisholm Project. And those of you who have any kind of engagement with, the Ch with Chisholm, we would love to to interview you for our histories as well. Singer Frazier is Assistant Professor of Africana Studies and Women's and Gender Studies and Director of the Shirley Chisholm Project at Brooklyn College. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. And we're going to pick it up with part two of our Black History Month presidential election year uh, looks next week when we talk about the Jesse Jackson campaign. Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC, where there's always a conversation 24-7. <laughs>